0: This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com/weeds for fifty percent off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: What's last let's podcast of twenty sixteen? The
0: worst year of podcasting ever. It
1: was uh-huh. a great year of podcasting, just a terrible <laughs> it was an awesome year, of America. year of podcasting.
0: I thought it was Everything great. Year. All right, let's back.
1: let's do this.
0: Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm uh, Matthew Iglesias, uh, joined in studio by my colleague Sarah Cliff. And e- Ezra Klein, where where are you? I'm coming to you all
2: from KUCI, which is the, the radio station at, at the University of California at Irvine. I'm an Irvine native. I'm here for the holiday. And they very kindly let me use their studio.
0: And this week, the final Weeds of 2016 is going to be uh, a look back. At a year that was eventful. In sorrow. And?
1: <laughs> no, in wisdom. In, in, in wisdom. In learning. Things have happened.
0: Um, we, we all. Um, experienced them together. We experienced them. We podcasted about them. Uh, we hopefully learned a thing or two. Um, and so I think the idea was that we were each going to come to the table with, a, with one thing that we had learned in the, a lesson from the world of politics and policy. And we could talk about it. So, Ezra, you, you have a good one. Sure. I'm ready to start. I got a lot. I don't know if it's a good one. (laughs) The
2: thing that I have struggled with throughout the year that I struggled with during the election and that I find hardest to absorb in its aftermath is the idea that and this has been a real change to my model of how politics works, that there is no bar. There is no floor that you can't drop beneath. So, So before this, here's I think how I thought about American politics, which is that. We have very sharply partisan parties. And so pretty much any candidate the Democrats or Republicans nominate will start with 45, 46 percent of the vote. But I actually had a bit of weight on the pretty much in that sentence. I thought there were candidates the parties could nominate that would not begin or would not at least end with 45, 46 percent of the vote. And Republicans in 2016 nominated such a candidate that nominated a candidate who was extraordinarily unpopular both in the country and also uh, during much of the primary in their own party. They nominated a candidate who was able to unify much of the party behind him, but always had a lot of signaling coming from elites that they were, were uncomfortable with him. They nominated a candidate who routinely strayed far outside the boundaries of what we considered decent in American politics. The way Donald Trump tweeted was just nuts during the whole campaign, uh, when he came out and said Ted Cruz's father was potentially involved in the JFK assassination. I thought that was an unusual moment. Um, the sexual assault allegations and, and tapes that came out, uh, some of his policies, the, the just the way in which he comported himself and acted throughout the campaign struck me as uh, beyond what would work in American politics. It struck me as a kind of thing that, you know, even given that you begin with a lot of party support, they were going to drop you beneath a bit of a floor because, you know, there's just a kind of you must be this decent to ride uh, dimension to this. And I just turned out to be wrong about that. And the implications for me of being wrong about that are, are actually pretty profound. I mean, This was part of why I thought that American politics was reasonably safe from demagogues, reasonably safe from really dangerous players. And now I see it kind of the opposite. I see that the way I've come to view what is going on is that there's this great line from the political scientist Julia Zari. uh, And she writes that we live in an age of weak parties but strong partisanship. And so if it really is a case that the sentence should actually be that no matter who the Democrats and Republicans nominate, they begin with 45 percent of the vote. Well, then you get into a, a much more dangerous place because the parties are very weak. Their primary systems are very weak. And as you saw with Trump this year, they can be taken over by all kinds of players. And if anyone can come in and take over the primary and then be guaranteed the support of the party, that actually makes a party system, it actually makes a primary system a vulnerability through which really, really dangerous things can enter, dangerous players can enter and take over American politics. So I, I am this year a lot more skeptical and concerned about the, the baseline security of, of American democracy and the baseline sort of tendency of the voters to say, hey, you, you, you've got you've to basically clear a bar to, to wield real power. In the United States, I think we've seen that that bar is a lot is a lot lower than I would have thought.
1: I, I have a question about about what you've learned, Ezra. So, do you think, and this is something we've talked about on a number of podcasts? I'm curious, like how how specific to Trump you think of this as, and like how widespread it might be. And I guess like one of the examples that comes to mind when I think about it was I remember, gosh, it was like a few years ago, um, maybe like 2010, 2012 covering um, Todd Aiken, this candidate for Senate in Missouri, who was mm-hmm. leading in the polls until he said, um, what was it, that um, the body has a way of shutting down pregnancy when there is a legitimate rape. And, I mean, this just, like, went, like, wildfire, and he ended up losing that race. And that, like, seemed to be a case, like, there is a bar. Like, that was a thing that put Aiken below mm-hmm. the bar. So I'm curious, like, how, like, is this something specific to someone with as much like celebrity as Trump? Or or how do you think about like where the bar has been
2: lowered? I struggle with this. You're obviously right. The people's estimations of of candidates change based on candidates doing dumb things. And by the way, I think that was true for Trump, too. It's not Matt has written about this. Well, it's not that Trump was truly Teflon. He's very unpopular. He won the election unpopular. People thought he was unqualified. Um, And and what happened is a lot of folks voted against the other candidate. So I I have a couple of thoughts then on that. One is that I don't know that it's unique to Trump, but I do think Trump really understood some unusual things about American politics that that certainly I didn't uh, come into this seeing as clearly. So he has a he he has a shamelessness about him. And I, I don't I mean that almost in a value neutral way. He does not become ashamed uh, when you attack him, when he does something wrong, he doesn't do what most politicians do, which is once the weight of the party comes against him, the weight of the media comes against him. He apologizes and agrees that he had made a terrible mistake. He just says, no, nope, like, like that was a great point. I stand by it. The National Enquirer is a great magazine. Who knows if Ted Cruz's father killed JFK? It's an interesting thing to talk about. And that actually turned out to be an, an interesting sort of play. Folks like Todd Aiken are not really good at that. So what happens and, and Hillary Clinton, for that matter, is not good at that. So what happens is they do something wrong. Then, you know, feeling bad about it or feeling pressured around it, they agree they did something wrong. And then you have a story where the media is saying they did it wrong. They're saying they did it wrong. Their own party is saying they did something wrong. The Democrats are saying they did something wrong or the Republicans, as the case may be. And everybody agrees and it helps the voters form that uh, that estimation. So so Trump was smart in that he wouldn't really allow that to happen to him. And he he didn't allow it to happen to him simply by never admitting um, fault and never he, he used those fights as part of his own persona. So that was one thing. So the other thing that was different was the presence of Hillary Clinton in the race. Um, Claire McCaskill is a politician whose political persona is built on creating a connection and being acceptable to voters with a slight red state lean, So she works very, very hard to be someone who, you know, even if you, you know, she is, I don't remember exactly where she comes down on the DW nominates course, but I think she's sort of a center left Democrat, if I, if I'm, you know, intuiting her voting record, right. Uh, but she has made herself reasonably acceptable to people somewhat to her right. And so when Aiken fell apart... She was a viable alternative for moderate Democrats, moderate Republicans, independents, sort of center-right-leaning independents in Missouri. What I think happened in the presidential election was that the Clinton campaign actually was effective, and frankly, Donald Trump himself was effective, at making Trump pretty unpopular. The thing is, though, that a lot of people just didn't want to take that step to Clinton. Now, again, you know, she won the popular vote. Some of this was just geographic breakdown, but but nevertheless— I think it was something like 51 percent of Trump's voters in exit polls said they were voting against Clinton. And this goes, again, a bit back to that partisanship point. If you take partisanship as really the driving force uh, in in American politics, it helps, I think, explain why both candidates really start almost no matter who they are with 45, 46 percent. It's because the sort of organs of partisanship, the mechanisms of partisanship, the drivers of partisanship, media outlets, uh, party elites, you know, et cetera, et cetera, they do such a good job of making you fear the other side that, yeah, it may be the case that your candidate is temperamentally unqualified, literally unqualified, that he acts in an erratic and occasionally scary manner, but he's running against a criminal who should be in jail. And if that's your choice, well, yeah, okay. I mean, people often do vote for the lesser of two evils. And I think a lot of people, a lot of Republicans felt like they were doing that in this election. So I I do think one of the pieces here was that one thing McCaskill was able to do with Aiken was, you know, people were kind of okay with her. They maybe didn't agree with her, but they sort of fundamentally liked her. She's a likable person. Clinton, particularly among Republicans, is really, really, really unpopular. And I think that helped Donald Trump not pay
0: for a lot of what he had done during the the campaign. I I would push you, though, on on some of this. I I think that Republican elites have shown much more ability to discipline and influence Donald Trump than you are giving them credit for, right? That Donald Trump, having started with a very hazy profile on policy, little connection to the institutional conservative movement, a tendency to sort of shoot from the hip and say lots and lots of very paradox things, has over the course of the past year, you know, very steadily parked himself as comfortable advancing the interests of inherited wealth, financial capital, fossil fuel extraction industries, um, which is like the main economic tent poles of the Republican Party. He's aligned himself with orthodoxy on guns, with orthodoxy on abortion, with orthodoxy on Israel. Um, I think a fascinating question is about how and why it is that trade agreements that are not that significant have come to play such a large symbolic role in American politics. But Trump has aligned himself with conservative orthodoxy on all of the most important issues of the day and not because he personally is like a diehard conservative but because he was made to go do that. Um, If Republicans wanted to – make Donald Trump do other things, they could. They just don't want to. I think we saw in North Carolina, for example, that like Donald Trump's total disregard for democratic norms is just part of conservative movement orthodoxy. Um, There's been a growing popularity of books from conservative intellectuals about how democracy is bad and people shouldn't be allowed to vote. Uh, There's a huge popularity of Ayn Rand on the right. Um, You know, a a lot of things like that. But I think Trump is— a wild character who does a lot of uh, entertaining and uh, disturbing things, but who, you know, fundamentally shows that the conservative movement is a very powerful institution in America and they win elections, uh, but people people have to cater to their key priorities.
2: I think both of those things are true. I actually don't I, – I, I agree with most of what you said there. I, I think Trump clearly created and adopted a pretty orthodox – and in, in times – almost amusingly orthodox conservative policy platform. Darlin, Lind, one of our writers at Vox, has made a good point that oftentimes when he got in trouble, it's because he was trying to parrot the standard Republican <laughs> line and just didn't know where to stop it, right? Like on, on abortion that, you know, well, of course, you know, maybe women need to be punished if they have an abortion. But I, I'm not sure that that's actually so different from what I'm saying. I think that there were a couple of things happening simultaneously. One was obviously Trump's attempts to get the republican party behind him which overwhelmingly worked and this was part of those attempts but the other was that that is i think a little bit separate and it was even separate in the minds of many republicans from some of trump's temperamental and characterological tendencies and and i think that a lot of the election played out on this particular arena i mean very much it was what hillary clinton ran against right we've talked about this on the show that Clinton did not run against Trump as an orthodox Republican. She ran against Trump as a kind of dangerous temperamental and personality outlier in American politics who you couldn't trust with nuclear weapons. It's also what Marco Rubio said about Trump to somebody what Ted Cruz said about Trump. Like when you went and looked at what his opponents said about him, it was that he was erratic, that he was a liar, that he was a narcissist, that he couldn't be trusted. And it's those doubts that I think actually a lot of the electorate in polling shared. A lot of the electorate said they thought his temperament was wrong for this job. Um, but it just, I think that what what I had wrong and to some what if clearly what the Clinton campaign had wrong and, and, and others had wrong was that actually wasn't enough. When I say there was a bar, I'm actually talking about a pretty non-ideological bar. Um, I'm not saying that, that the bar is whether you want to repeal Obamacare or whether you want to create Obamacare. I'm saying that sort of on both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans, I thought people just took the job of the presidency seriously enough that they would demand someone who's just tendencies, temperament made them feel pretty confident. I think that isn't how people felt about Trump, including on the Republican side. I talked to a lot of um, Republican politicians, Republican media folks who were very, very, very concerned about just the way he acted. Um, But, you know, that wasn't enough to in any serious or significant way uh, dent his core support. And so it seemed that in the end, he sort of had most of or all of what a normal Republican would have through some combination of Republicans hating Hillary Clinton and um, Republicans, you know, noticing that he had adopted their priorities. Then he was able to pull out a couple more folks who felt, you know, left behind by the system or, you know, maybe thrilled to the more, um, the more unusual, let's put it that way, parts of his message. And that was geographically certainly a winning coalition.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, you were saying, Ezra, that you talked to a lot of folks who were concerned. But then, like, when I've spent time talking to Trump voters, I almost heard the opposite. Like, it was an asset that he was always going to say what he was thinking. He was not going to hold back. Like, when I was in this area of Kentucky, that went really heavy for Trump. um, A lot of the people I talked to there, you know, I'd ask them, was Trump the person you supported because he was the candidate or, like, in the primaries? And Pretty universally, the people I talked to there, they said in the primaries, like, that's a guy who who tells it like it is. And I I mean, I do think, like, that is often an accurate estimation and that, like, he is not filtering himself in the way that we think, like, this bar leads to folks filtering themselves. It surprised me as well that that was as appealing to people as it was through the primaries, through the general election. And I— that doesn't totally square with the low um, favorability numbers. So I know this is you know some anecdotal data, but I do think that is like in the same vein. One thing that surprised me, and that that translated almost into a benefit in a belief that this is someone who's honest in a way that that mm-hmm. he was willing to say such outrageous things that that he was he he was an honest broker and was was not but going I, to be I, think I think it's I think
0: there's something interesting in there in the sort of Trump induced like class shift in voting patterns where college educated people, you know, became unusual college educated white people became unusually unlikely to vote for the Republican nominee, whereas working class white people became unusually likely to vote for him. And it, it it seems to me that some of that stuff around like language and and behavioral norms is really uh Driving that, I mean a gap in how Mm -hmm. sort of professional class people and working class people regard, you know, norms of Mm -hmm. conduct and and polite society and that the Clinton campaign to – operating to an extent within a a little bit of a a psychosocial bubble assumed that like everyone would regard this manner of behavior as – as like outrageous and obviously disqualifying and clearly a large number of people really did but there's a significant minority of the population that sees it like 180 degrees the opposite that like this is what we need in politics is more um i'll be polite about it and call it bluntness (laughs) um because that's how I was—I was taught to be. <laughs> um, but you know that—that's that, a, a sort of a, a hidden divide, I think, in American mm-hmm. life. Right? Is around uh, so, some of that stuff around like modes of conduct and like is it good or bad in America that we have sort of pressure to self police. Mm-hmm. But I think
2: that that's the way in which actually, Sarah, it does square with the low favorability numbers, and, and and this is why I really want to emphasize that I think it's important in in understanding Trump to put these things together. So, so David Paul Kuhn wrote this piece in the New York Times um, earlier this week about how I think it's called some like "No Liberals, mm-hmm. Racism Didn't Elect" or "Bigotry Didn't Elect Donald Trump," and of course it didn't. Um, what elected Donald Trump was fundamentally, first and foremost, Republican and Republican-leaning voters, and it's only once you put together that 44, 45, 46%, whatever you think it was, 43%. And then you say, okay, well, what added the the bit on top of that? Right. And and there, I think that there was, it, it clearly wasn't most voters because again, Trump was extremely unpopular, extremely unpopular in the primary, the least popular president we've ever elected, the least popular nominee of a party ever. So it wasn't most voters, but for some voters, the very things that made him unpopular were exactly what made him great, exactly what made him finally someone who would say what nobody would say, which is that like, you know, the Mexicans coming across the border were criminals, or that the Muslims coming over um on 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 ships and on planes were actually terrorists. And and that created a very, very hot core of of Trump support. The thing that, you know, to go back to, to my learnings from the year, um, that I think I would have thought is that yeah, but the unpopular part of it—the fact that it was broadly unpopular—is going to erode so much of his support that it doesn't matter. And the thing that I think I—the the thing that I think we saw is that that actually didn't happen. That there is so much pull in American politics to vote for—and reasonable, rational pull, right? I mean, the parties are very far apart on the issues. If you're a Republican, you have real reasons not to like Hillary Clinton, but the pull of of party was so strong that. It really didn't harm him that much that so many people, including so many in the Republican Party, including so many elites in the Republican Party, really found this guy personally um, not fit for the presidency, that as long as he was willing to sing more or less sometimes most of the time from the from the policy him Noel. Uh, they were willing to to stick by him. And then you can put that together with his maths pointing out, this group of folks who felt uniquely activated by Trump, who felt that he was finally someone who was saying what they have always thought, finally someone representing them who wouldn't forget them when he got into office. Mm-hmm. And that created what what proved to be a winning coalition. But I always try to emphasize is that for me what was surprising about Trump's victory was not how he got from like 45% to 47 point, whatever it was that he ended at, it is how he um got from 35 to 45. And I always say, like, that's the part of this I've always been trying to explain. And, and you know, this is more or less my explanation. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. But it's the part, it's his normal support, the folks who like didn't love him, who you see in mm-hmm. polls, who I think are really interesting. The, the Trump supporters who loved him, I think actually got a lot of attention throughout the primary or throughout the general election but the folks who turned up at his rallies and so forth. But that's not who he won with. I mean, they, they, they were the final bit of the coalition. The folks he won with were actually not that comfortable with him oftentimes, but it didn't matter. They were more afraid of Hillary Clinton, um, more afraid of the Democrats. Partisanship is just very, very, very powerful at this point in American politics in ways that I think it almost creates structural incentives to do some of what Trump did.
0: If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors or sweeteners. So you can feel OK about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. they got great apples. they got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want as often as you want with no minimum purchase required and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com. You check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now, you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. NatureBox.com weeds. All right, Sarah Cliff.
1: My what's lesson? your politics
0: and policy list?
1: All right, okay. So I had believed this thing about... Mine's unsurprisingly going to be related to the healthcare law, Obamacare. I had believed this thing about Obamacare that um, I was—I've written multiple times. It's variations of the headlines, Obamacare is here to stay, Obamacare won't be repealed. There's this headline I wrote um, after the King versus Burwell decision, really the last big Supreme Court challenge the ACA, about Obamacare survived its final test and it's here to stay. And I wrote a lot about how 20 million people have insurance and Republicans can't take that insurance away— um, that it, now that Democrats had done this thing where they rolled out these benefits to millions of people, the law had really secured its place in history. And this year has really been a challenge to the way I have thought about how, how benefits and policy and politics interact. I had a theory going into this year that as you give people things, and I think Democrats shared this theory, that, that they would rally to protect it. The other party would be less uh, willing to dismantle it that they would not want to take away this thing that people rely on. And then we end up in this point where we have the party that has promised to take away insurance from 20 million people elected and really not backing down from those those promises, really laying the groundwork quite quickly to move forward on repealing the Affordable Care Act. And so that has really, it's challenged my view that benefits are are something that becomes secure quickly, are something that are hard to dismantle um, and that are hard to take away from people. Now, I do think, and I'm sure we'll get into this, obviously the ACA hasn't been repealed yet. Maybe this theory holds more true than I believe it to be, but with all the movement towards repeal, it makes me much less confident in this view that um, you, you can pass a benefits program and expect it to be really entrenched in history the way Medicare and Medicaid have been. And that really opens up for me a lot of questions about what the future of entitlement legislation looks like. Um, In an era where we might be passing a lot of programs on party-line votes, do you end up with this kind of policy ping-pong where each party is more focused on electoral victories? They don't want to work with the other party on creating entitlement programs – so you end up flipping back and forth between the Democrats' version of health care and the Republicans' version of health care with very little stability, which would be quite different than, you know, Medicare and Medicaid were passed with bipartisan votes, and really you didn't see a lot of change in party control. There was never a good opportunity in the next few decades to take them apart. So that, I think, is the lesson that really has reshaped how I think about the future of um, entitlement politics.
0: Yes. I agree with that.
1: <laughs> Ezra, I know. I think you have some quibbles with my lesson, though.
2: I don't know that I have quibbles. Okay. I'm, I am less sure of how far it goes yet. Uh, and, and obviously, we've had this conversation on the podcast before. So I think broadly what you're saying is right. There was a, a view Democrats held in 2010, um, 2009 as well, that if they just got the Affordable Care Act over the finish line, that even if it wasn't popular the day it passed, it would become popular as people began experiencing uh, benefit from it. And that that view has clearly proven false, right? I think to, to, that's part of the lesson, and, and that is, you know, just simply discredited. And not only that, but I think Republicans have managed to keep up a fervor around this law, even as it has begun delivering benefits, even as it's begun delivering benefits in many of their states, right? Mm-hmm. Many of these states have taken the Medicaid expansion. Many, all of these states have a lot of people relying on this insurance, but they have kept ideologically very much in the same place they were the day it, it passed. I'm, it's actually an amazing fact of American politics, how much the views on Obamacare have been stable from before the law launched to now years after it's been in effect. I mean, if you look at those Kaiser tracking polls, yeah. it's been like, you know, 47, 44 forever. It's really remarkable. <laughs> and, it's just this
1: like straight and, line for seven years. It's really it's a stunning chart.
2: Everything we've seen, everything we've learned, it has changed in nobody's minds about anything. As it went from theory to fact to, like, working program, nobody anywhere has looked at it and said, oh, that's better than I thought or, oh, that's worse than I thought. So it really actually just shows how much um, this stuff is probably not driven by how the programs go, but actually about, you know, underlying, uh, again, to, to go back to what I was talking about earlier, underlying partisan divides. That said, I think the jury is still out on what is going to happen When Republicans actually wielding the power to repeal it, try to repeal and or replace it. I think the thing that they are trying to do right now where they pass a repeal and replace bill that has no replacement and puts repeal on a two year time delay, it actually in some ways makes me uh, doubt even more that. They can really do what they think they can do. Now, that, that bill, for for reasons you've talked about, Sarah, is, is sort of a disaster because it'll probably collapse the marketplaces in the meantime. But I, I'm not sure they're thinking about it like that. What I, I do think you see, though, is that they've never been able to come, around, around, come together around a replacement, that it's going to be their mess now. And, I mean, you were in Kentucky and you were talking to these folks who are Trump voters, who do care about this law and did not really believe that he would take it away from them they're going to hear from a lot of people like that i think it was uh you can correct me if i'm wrong i think it was governor martinez the other day from new mexico is a, a star republican governor who came out and said that you know hey if they if they really just undid obamacare that would be a real that could create some real problems in her state i think they're going to hear that from a lot of governors so you know there's a, a we actually published a really good play piece from john kingsdale which is a, a more optimistic mm-hmm. take on this than frankly where i sit but he had this uh, this line where he said that, you know, repeal and replace was going to be be uh, replaced by, I think it was reform and rename mm-hmm. that they would have to come up with something that was fairly like Obamacare, but you know it was now Trump Care. They could put their ownership stamp on, you know, changed a bunch of things here and there, but didn't create a ton of pain. And you know, he may be right about that. So I don't know. I I think you're. I, I take your lesson. I actually agree with most of it. But I'm not sure we've seen Mm -hmm. the final piece of it yet. I'm not sure. I think we've seen that it won't become popular, but I'm not sure we know how truly vulnerable it is because like they are one day going to have to like look at, you know, a world where if they sign, if like Donald Trump puts pen to paper on this piece of statute, there is going to be a day the next year, October of the next year, when 16 million people are going to lose their health insurance. And that is a day of very,
0: very, very bad press coverage. And I'm, you know, we'll we'll see how we'll see how much they want that. Yeah, I, I sort of agree with everything that's been said. I I just I want to state the welfare state entrenchment thesis a, a little bit differently. I I took. Uh, Paul Pearson's uh, cl- class in college, he's the author of, a, of an old book called Rolling Back the Welfare State, question um, mark, and it's it's a book primarily about uh, Ronald Reagan-era United States and even more importantly, actually, Margaret Thatcher's United Kingdom um, because there are in effect no institutional impediments to a UK governing majority doing whatever it wants, right? If if Margaret Thatcher had wanted to pass a law saying there's no national health service at all, um, it's replaced by nothing, everyone is just out on the streets, no, nobody could stop her, right? Um, but she didn't do that. She didn't do anything like that. Even as she implemented some, some very dramatic changes in, in UK public policy, the basic framework of, of the welfare state stayed in place and and the reason that... I believe this would be true of the Affordable Care Act wasn't that I thought the law would become popular or the name would become popular or, or anything like that, but because once these things are in place, you develop a group of, of stakeholders. You know, they are – whether it's hospital administrators or medical doctors or the guy who owns a chain of gas stations in an eastern Kentucky town where many people – get Affordable Care Act benefits, just like a whole web of people, people and and elites and and business types. And elected officials, I thought, tried to represent their constituents, right? Like those people, like the community Sarah was reporting, and she talked a lot to like the individual, like low-income people who are getting Affordable Care Act benefits. But there's like a whole community of people there that is better off because that money is flowing into that town. And information about that fact was supposed to flow up to elected officials who are supposed to want to make Kentucky be more prosperous and and channel things in, in that way. And it's – very clear. It's not clear what will exactly happen to the Affordable Care Act, uh, but it's very clear that broadly speaking, Republican Party members of Congress are very comfortable disregarding that kind of place-based economic interest type concern. We saw that going back to the stimulus bill in in 2009. These are things that should have been early warning signs, right? I mean, I remember there was a lot of thinking in the Obama transition that – to get Susan Collins and Olympia Snow to vote for their health care reform, there was going to have to be some like big porky thing for the state of Maine in there. And they were like brainstorming, like, what could we do that's plausible? Uh, to get moderate Democrats to vote for the bill, they wound up doing stuff like that. There were like local tailor-made things that helped Nebraska and Louisiana. But that whole style of politics has really waned, you know, not just with regard to – this particular bill but to legislation sort of writ large you see much less evidence of like the congressional delegation from the deep south having some distinctive opinion about deep southy issues that makes them different from republicans from the upper midwest uh, instead you know partisanship in congress really 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 is like trouncing everything.
1: Well, and this actually, this relates to, I feel like, another related lesson is I think I underestimated when it happened over the past few years how much the partisan roots of the Affordable Care Act mattered Um, and that they have really, I think, you know, Ezra, to your point that Republicans have really maintained a lot of ideological consistency on the ACA, I think that's a lot easier when literally no one from your party supported it. and. Um, there's a political scientist um at University of Charleston, I believe, Jordan Ragusa, whose last name I might be botching, but he he studies um repeal. And I've had some interesting conversations with him. And he was one of the things he's found in his research is that bills that are um are passed in um bills that are passed on party lines face higher odds of repeal than those that are passed in a bipartisan nature. And I think I had at the time when I was covering it, I, I thought. You know, they weren't going to get any Republican votes, and they would pass this thing on a party line. The benefits would roll out, and the partisanship around it would degrade a little bit. But it really does not seem to be the case at all. And I think the partisan roots of the Affordable Care Act, they lead to all these things that really play out over the past few years. Like states, for example, that don't like Obamacare really disguise the fact that Obamacare is Obamacare. Like Mike Pence, accepts the money to do Medicaid expansion. But he, he says again and again, no, this isn't Medicaid expansion. This isn't Obamacare. This is just Indiana changing our Medicaid program when he is definitely getting the money to change the program through Obamacare. And you have a lot of states that um, set up these marketplaces where they try not uh, to not talk about the fact it's an Obamacare marketplace. It's a Kentucky marketplace. It's an Idaho um, health insurance marketplace. And this really comes back to roost this election when, when you kind of have a lack of clarity and a lack of um, any kind of constituency built up around the Affordable Care Act. There's um, another researcher, Josh um, Clinton at um, Vanderbilt, who's been talking to Medicaid recipients in Kentucky, trying to see if there's any sort of constituency that's been built around it. And he's found, no, like people don't really seem to vote in any sort of different way um, or or really think more highly of the Affordable Care Act or or become more politically engaged um, once they sign up for this Program so I think that's really another related lesson is that the partisan roots of legislation seem to matter much more than I would have thought they did a few years ago.
2: So there's a way um, in which uh, Sarah, your lesson from the year and my lesson, either are actually the same, which is that very, very, very high levels of partisanship um, are potentially changing how American politics works. That models based on previous periods in American life are not actually that predictive right now. And and this is, in in my view, a hard thing to convey in a day-to-day way. People have a strong bias towards believing that whatever is happening right now in politics is how it always has been. The system has been superficially quite similar for a long time, right? We have a, a Senate and a House and a presidency and a Supreme Court and these institutions and the elections and the Electoral College, and so you kind of look and political parties and it all just looks the same, right? We had Republicans and Democrats fighting in the '50s. We had them fighting in the '70s. We had them fighting in the '20s, and you know, and you'll get people like pulling a quote from that period and showing, well, look, people were very mean to each other then too. So I think people tend to have a, a view that whatever is going on now is just kind of how it's always been. It's just us living it. But if you if you look at a lot of the data, that's really not true. Uh, the degree to which the parties mix and are mixed ideologically has dropped to, to really historic lows. I mean, you used to see, and there are these great visualizations of it you can find online, but the Republican Party used to have a lot of liberals in it, had, and not just in it as voters, but in it in the House, in it in the Senate. Uh, there was a period of time when Strom Thurmond was the second most conservative member of the Senate, but he was a Democrat. So there are all kinds of reasons this happened, I and mean, race being a big, big one. But that was really, as the parties have... Become ideologically very sorted as the as it is no longer as as it has become the case that there are no Democrats in the House or the Senate more conservative than the most liberal Republican and no Republicans more liberal than the most conservative Democrat. The way the parties work have really changed, and it has created I think to some there's not any one break point because it's been a trend that's been going on at least since the 90s. I always think it's a helpful thing to to think about that. Barack Obama is the most polarizing president since we began polling by by party. But before him, it was George W. Bush who set the record and before George W. Bush, it was Bill Clinton. This has just been going up and up and up and up. And as that happens, it is actually changing in important ways how things in American politics work. So we have these theories of how welfare states function Mm -hmm. and what kinds of political support they develop and how place-based American politics are. And those theories are based on a period of time when partisanship and particularly the ideological side of partisanship was a lot weaker. So to, to Matt's point, which I think is a, a really good one and worth spending some time appreciating, it is really, really powerful and different the way place has begun mattering a lot less in American politics. During uh, People might remember that after the financial crisis and after the stimulus and all that, we began having, starting like a year later or something, these occasional votes on extending long-term unemployment insurance. So we had made the program more generous um, uh, for a period of time when people were finding themselves out of work for much longer. And it wasn't even that generous. Uh, But that was temporary, that expansion of the program. So every so often, the Senate and the House and the president would have to pass an extension. And initially, that was, you know, everybody was doing it. And then pretty quickly became raw partisanship. And I I ran this analysis of it where I looked at, uh, could you find a relationship uh, around voting for the long-term unemployment extensions based on whether unemployment in that senator state was above or below the national average, and my, you know, the the hypothesis was, you know, if you come from a state where people are are suffering much more unemployment than the national average, then you're going to be more likely to vote for for the federal government to give those people money to to help them, you know, exist until they can find a job, but there's basically no relationship. It was the way the vote was breaking down was if you're a Democrat, you were voting for it. And if you're a Republican, you were voting against it. And that, too, is a huge change in American politics. If you if people are not going to vote on the unique and specific needs of their place that really changes what they vote on. I mean, the old theories that you can get people to vote for something by giving them a bridge or by doing something important for their home district. is just not true anymore. A lot of them raise their money from from donors across the country, from big PACs, from super PACs, from ideological small donors. A lot of them um, see their incentives and get their media from national media or outlets and organs, right? Breitbart is not doing a lot of like in district reporting, uh, but a lot of you know Republican members of Congress are very concerned about what Breitbart thinks of them, and you just get a you get politics working in a fundamentally different way, working in a way that is based off of national partisanship, and it's much harder to break national partisanship, and the incentives of national partisanship are much clearer than the incentives of trying to you know work in a very specific way for your district.
1: All right. Matt, I think that's true. You're so your, oh.
0: yeah, so so my my lesson that that has surprised me, and I, I guess some people will say this is this is obvious, but I, I think it is a little less obvious than than people think. I have been really, I thought it was pretty. obvious. I have been really surprised, particularly over over the past couple months, to see how much people care who the president is. That like when you look at um, numerical trajectories on on, uh, consumer confidence and optimism about the future, the incredible shifts. I mean I'm not surprised to see a partisan shift, but it is huge. Um, And not only is it huge in magnitude, but it's huge in magnitude compared to shifts that we saw after things like the 2010 midterms, right? We've witnessed a bunch of big turnabouts in the political – balance of power that didn't involve Barack Obama being replaced by Donald Trump, and they like didn't move the needle at all. And by the same token, I mean, I have witnessed – I I cannot count on my fingers the number of different people I have witnessed spontaneously bursting into tears in the two weeks after Donald Trump won. And nobody cried. I know people who worked on the the heartbreaking loss of what's-her-name's North Carolina Senate campaign in 2014. Um and and like even they didn't didn't cry about that. But like random not Kay Hagan? Kay Is Hagan. That- yeah, 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 yeah. Um uh, random like not even that political people were like emotionally devastated um by, by Hillary Clinton winning. Losing. 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 She Losing. lost. Um people do not <laughs> Liberal people who live in Austin do not seem to me to care at all. Like on an an intellectual level, they care. But on an emotional level, the fact that the state government of Texas is so much more right-wing than the state government of California or Oregon or Rhode Island does not like bother them. And certainly nobody ever says like, fuck this. I'm leaving Austin and moving to Providence because I care so much about progressive politics um but people are really emotionally affected by this presidential election outcome and not just like they care a lot and then they appear to care not at all about any other kind of <laughs> politics and it strikes me as a a a surprising in its extent and a little wrong. I mean like disturbing in its its implications. Like I know left-wing people who live in California who are furious every day. They are mad on the internet that Hillary Clinton beat Bernie Sanders in the primary and that some people like me did not immediately say that she was terrible because she opposed single-payer healthcare. But they live in California, this like super liberal state that just elected a democratic supermajority. They have nothing to say about healthcare policy in California. Right? Like, why don't they do a single payer healthcare system? Why doesn't fucking Vermont do a single payer healthcare system? <laughs>
1: they gave it a good go. Well, they gave it a go,
0: but like the left wing voters. Sarah has a lot of answers on why Vermont did not do a single payer you know, healthcare system. But like TLDR, people didn't want to pay higher taxes. Yes. So, whatever. I mean, congratulate them or scorn them or whatever. But if you care a lot, if, if you think you care a lot about single-payer health care, you should care. But, like, pe- people are not that worked up about that story.
1: So, I well, I think there's two separate things going on here that you're talking about. One that I find surprising, one that I am in the camp of, it felt a little more obvious to me. One is a lot of the shifts in, like, people's confidence in the future of the country. Like, I think um, Jeff Stein did a post yesterday about how, like, economic confidence just, like, has swung up through older voters. Yeah, for old people. For old people. are suddenly, like, oh, or suddenly, man. like, everything's great. I think the separate part, the, like, people spontaneously bursting into tears part, that part felt a little more obvious to me because I think it was so, I mean, like tied up in like the gender politics of it, of the idea of having a first female president. And there really is, we've talked about it in previous episodes leading up to the election, really decent research on all these things that change when you have more women in public office, where you have just how people view women seems to change differently. There's really great research from India where they assigned um, a certain number of women... Um, a, a certain number of seats had to be given to women. And you saw all these things change. Women were more likely to report sexual assaults. They're viewed differently by their communities. Women, um, Parents have higher ambitions for their daughters. So that part I get. Like, I feel like that part, I understand. Like, I was excited to have a female president. Like, I was, like, one of the people who, on very low sleep, just got, like, very—I I was a spontaneous burster into tears just over the— idea that we were going to have a female president and that we didn't so that part I understand I get the part that like surprised I thought was a bigger shift than I had expected was a lot of the swings on like the direct how do you feel like the country is going that I'm sure you probably see it on the other side that um young voters I'm curious if like you see them thinking like the country is now going in an absolutely terrible. Yeah, yeah. When I mean, the that's, presidency, that's, like, is like Ezra has written a decent amount, you know, isn't uh, quite as influential as we think it is. Well, I mean, and, that, and not, the not just the country. I
0: mean, what was interesting was it was specifically a consumer confidence mm-hmm. survey, right? I mean, like, I think there are very good re- I mean, th- there's a lot that changes when, mm-hmm. when you're president, but I would say of all the things that, like, are going to be radically different in a Donald Trump administration versus Hillary Clinton. Administration, <laughs> the like medium term outlook for the economy is like really low.
1: Yes, on that. Yes, yeah, I agree. Right, with that. in
0: terms of like abortion law is going to get really, really different. Yes,
2: I don't know if I would frame it in terms of surprised or unsurprised here, but I'm much more sympathetic. I think to some of the the tendencies and ideas that, that you're talking about here, Matt. So I, again, I think you have two things here, as, as Sarah said. One is the size and magnitude and emotional magnitude of reactions to the the Trump Obama uh, I'm sorry, the Trump Clinton race and the and the outcome of that race. And the other, which I think is different, is the huge disconnect between how much people identify and emotionally invest in presidential politics versus congressional and then beneath that versus state and local. I don't really feel there's been a big change on that latter dimension. Um and, and you know, I mean, look, like People think in stories. Uh, it, it's always frustrated me that people are so much more emotionally invested in, in the president than in all these things that collectively are probably a lot more powerful than the president, like Congress. But nevertheless, I don't think it's surprising, right? It's like why people watch television and get very upset about, you know, their favorite character dying, but not that upset about, you know, the number of people worldwide who die every year because of dysentery. You know, it's just like I... I, I, I on the one hand, like it's totally, totally illogical. On the other hand, it's sort of how we are all wired to think in these stories that make more sense in, you know whatever small communities. And so I don't know. I, I I very very much agree with like the the underlying point, but I'm 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 somehow not surprised by it. I feel like it's just kind of always been that way, and it is one reason that you know state and local politics, which I think are so much more important than than people give them credit for, just don't get as much attention as they they really should. But the other side of it is the Trump-Clinton election, I think, spoke in a way that most of these don't to people's ideas of what sort of country we were and where the country was going. There was a narrative dimension to Trump-Clinton that I don't think attached to um, Romney-Obama, for instance or I don't really even think attached to like people in 2004, I think 2004 is the election that felt in people's reactions a little bit most like this one to me, although much softer Uh, liberals had this real feeling that they'd been rejected by the country. You had all these maps of like all that red, you know, and showing that like liberals just like lived in these small enclaves of LA and San Francisco and New York, even though the actual election outcome, it wasn't super close, but you know, it was 53, 47, I think. And, but it, it felt to them because they, they felt so angry about, you know, what Bush had done and what he was doing and what kind of person um, they, they, they saw him to be, that it felt like a, a rejection of them and their vision for the country. And there were all these op-eds after about, you know, liberals needing to reconnect with the heartland and, you know, needing to like understand real America again. And then they just nominated Barack Hussein Obama and, you know, <laughs> they built uh, a, an electoral coalition based off of the literal opposite premise. But I think that um, this election had this quality where in a way that would not have been true if it had been Marco Rubio versus Hillary Clinton and really wouldn't have been true if it had been Martin O'Malley versus um, Chris Christie. It, people experienced the outcome of it as either an affirmation or rejection of them and where they fit in the country and where they fit in the American story. And I think this is much truer role, particularly for um people of color and and as Sarah was saying for you know many women. And it's not really about the policies, but I, I do kind of under, I do see how it would extrapolate there, right? I mean, you know, if you if you believe like what has happened here is really, really, really bad, um, and it, it speaks to the country going in a much more retrograde direction, or conversely, in a much more pro-America direction. The fact that you might extrapolate that to consumer confidence, right, to the idea that the medium term economy will be a lot better. I, I could totally get that. So I don't know. I, I do the power of the election. I agree with you that it was striking afterwards. Um, I felt it, uh, but I am I think it's explicable. But the disjuncture between presidential politics and, and other kinds of politics feels to me like a perennial problem that um, there just isn't really a way to solve, but also that it's not like people being hypocritical. It's just Sort of how we all are.
0: Well, so I I think that the disjoint is growing, and I think it has less to do with the specifics of Clinton versus versus Trump than you guys are giving it credit for. I I think it's worth thinking about the incredibly deep feelings that Bernie Sanders supporters have about the outcome of this presidential campaign, which are not explicable in those exact same terms. They're explicable in the terms that that Ezra posited just about TV shows that like people just like care a lot about the candidates, uh, presidential politics. And I think that the split is growing. It's not that people have become more indifferent to state and local politics, but people are getting increasingly amped up about presidential politics without that engagement um, sort of moving them up the ladder of concern, I keep, like, hoping, right? Like, I I, I remember – I think I'm, like, a couple years older than, than you guys. And in, in the late 90s, like, on college campuses, like, the big thing was, like, oh, there's too much apathy, you know, like students just don't care about things anymore like, right. like, like they did in the, in the 60s or whatever. It's apathy, apathy, apathy. Um, and then, you know, it was only after 9-11 that like caring about things <laughs> started to be a thing um, that then that, that went on an upsurge. <laughs> and every time, whether it's Barack Obama or, or Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders, something like new and exciting happens in presidential politics, I start looking for it to have like some kind of tail down-ballot where, like, people get interested in something. Uh, the the Tea Party in, in 2010 was, like, the only case when I saw, like, any beginnings of something like a stirring of that, like obscure House backbenchers fighting with each other over things. But that died out pretty quickly. I think we've seen, like, no evidence of a growing movement toward advocacy for socialism In America, even though there's like a huge block of people who are really fired up about Bernie Sanders, um, Barack Obama like had this like big game about organizing and and all this stuff, um, but you don't don't really see it. So I I feel like it's not like new that people discount state and local politics, but people used to sort of not care that much about anything, and I feel like over time we are caring more and more and more about who is the president because we feel like who wins the— a joke I, I guess I made is that, you know, if, if you look at the way the Electoral College works, if the Upper Peninsula of Michigan were part of Wisconsin and the Florida Panhandle were part of Alabama, um, Hillary Clinton would have won the Electoral College even with all the same votes being the same. And then we would have all these takes about how the Republican Party is fundamentally out of touch with like the new, more diverse America instead of takes about how the Democratic Party is fundamentally out of touch with working class heartland, whatever. And so people do feel, right, that like who wins the presidential election defines which America is the real America. So we should like all really, really care. Whereas like small things like what does the government of every single state do all the time, running <laughs> all of our schools and making laws that govern every aspect of our lives is kind of like, oh, politics is boring. And it just, it like reminds me of, People have that same like 90s attitude and I get it. Like <laughs> politics is kind of boring and I, I always invite people to um, not listen to the weeds and not <laughs> share with your friends. Um, but I, I find it – But we also invite people – To listen. To listen. <laughs> to listen to great. the weeds. even I do even find better. it with your fundamentally friends. strange that people want to get like more and more like geared up about who is president without like any of that concern trickling down to like who's my state senator.
1: But I mean part of that, me, I think – speaks to something Ezra was talking about earlier. Part of that, I don't um, think—I think it's happening on both ends. I I don't think it's just the case people getting more amped about the presidency and staying um, just as interested in local politics. I'm going to make a theory with very little evidence to back it up, but that there's also, like, a decreasing interest or decreasing ability, at least, to get good information about state politics. Like, I think this speaks to kind of the nationalization and polarization of media— where you see a lot less jobs in state houses, a lot less coverage of local government. So there's just a lot less ability to, like, understand what your local government is doing, the types of laws that they're passing, and a lot more national news site, of, of which Vox.com is one of them. Like, we focus on the national angle of politics. We are not telling the stories. We we are sometimes telling stories about states, but it's usually in a more, like, national, what does this mean for national trends or what can we learn about the country from What's happening in this state? Um, So I, I don't know like what the funding of local races like how that is changing, but it seems like there is a lot less coverage, a lot less money going towards media that focuses on state level politics, and a lot more money going into media that is covering the national story, which kind of pushes the interest in that direction.
2: I I think that's completely right. I was actually gonna. I have a three pronged um, theory on this, of which. One prong was was very similar to Sarah, that we have less coverage of state and local and to some degree, maybe even sometimes congressional and much more coverage of presidential level politics than we used to. I mean, I, I remember I was involved in the 2004 election uh, just like as a blogger and I was an intern for Howard Dean for like two months <laughs> until until I left. And it was like if you wanted to learn about that election, and that was already election where you had the beginning of blogs and, you know, sort of the beginning of online media. But I mean, I remember people like who were really into it. They had to turn on CNN's Inside Politics at 2 p.m. Because like, there just weren't places to go to find out what was going on. It was at 4 p.m. Um, and partic- <laughs> 4 p.m., I'm sorry. I was on a different coast than you. I think it was earlier oh, for true. me. Oh, um,
0: true.
2: But it went further than that, right? I mean, if you wanted to read about what was going on, you really were. You know, it was like the Washington Post, the New York Times. I remember that on campaigns, everybody was reading Hotline, right, which was mm-hmm. back then run by Chuck Todd. And like that was a place where... Everything was, even as there was a lot of really good reporting on it, it was a lot calmer and more bloodless. So the kinds of things you could read about Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton today in the Washington Post and in the New York Times, the kind of sort of more takeish pieces, the more analytical pieces, uh, they were much rarer. And so the kinds of stuff you're reading about the presidential election were both, there was less of it. It was, it was less opinionated. It was more calm. Um, and it was also just like less pervasive, uh, I think, was part of it. But the other two pieces to me are, again, one is partisanship. As the two parties have gone further and further apart, there are these great Pew polarization studies. And they actually only go back to 1994, which in some ways is, a, is somewhat useful because it's not that far back. But what they show, and I don't have the exact numbers on me, but what they show is that since 94, the percentage of each party that has come to view the other party as a literal threat to the nation has gone way way up I think it's in the, something like the 30s or the 40s now up from the tens or the you know some some something like that so if you believe the stakes are just literally higher right if if you if you believe that the difference between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump or even Barack Obama and Mitt Romney is just vast in a way that the difference between Bill Clinton and George HW Bush simply was not uh, then I think it's to some degree reasonable that you get like much more worked up about it. And then finally, and, and I think this goes to your point about the '90s, Matt. One reason I think not caring was more uh, common in the '90s was that things were kind of going okay. I think people felt pretty good. You know, the economy is going well. We were inventing the internet. You know, there was reasonable peace and prosperity abroad. And then, if you've come of age since 2001, right, basically beginning with 9/11, it's been this period of extraordinary. National and international tumult. I mean, if it, like just like a very quick list of what happens, it includes like not just nine eleven, but the Afghanistan war, the Iraq war, the financial crisis, the election of the first black president, um, the passage of Obamacare. You know, people who are coming out of college at this point are, are coming into a much you know even as the market has improved a much worse job market. They have a lot more debt. Internationally, things seem in some ways um, you know, and this might be wrong. It might be a function of, of weird reporting, but can seem more unstable a little bit more dangerous. And so I think that one reason people are so much more worked up about the presidency um is just that like that's how they kind of symbolically think about politics and politics has just gotten much more of a grip on the country than it did, you know, back when when things seemed calmer and you know you had elections between like Bill Clinton and Bob Dole which are different folks, but, you know, didn't, I think it didn't feel like the, the end of the earth. I mean, it's so hard to imagine people doing what they did in 2000, where like the big critique was that Al Gore and George W. Bush were the same, right? There are a lot of people who felt like Hillary Clinton wasn't left enough or, you know, or Donald Trump wasn't right enough, but there's very little, they're the same. But like that Tweedledee and Tweedledum thing, it just bespeaks a, a very different period, both in partisanship and in how consequential politics felt to people.
0: Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I just like, again, want to emphasize how little people expand that beyond the presidential race. Like, mm-hmm. here's a good uh, Pew, Pew poll from right after the 2010, like the 2010 midterms were a very significant event, right? If Democratic Party had maintained a majority in the House of Representatives in 2010, all aspects of American history from then forward would have been profoundly different it seems to me after that election happened only 46% of people realized that republicans had won the majority you know and that's like not like well were they amped up about it like people people didn't know and that's fine too and i can i can see the case for like not caring about politics and i can see the case for caring about politics a lot in this like more momentous time but this like mismatch of like Yo, I'm mad online, but also I don't even know who my member of Congress is. It's it's weird. I think it's, it's – anyway, I have been surprised uh, and it makes me – I think that it plays into some of the stuff we're talking about in terms of the welfare state and, and other types of things. That if politics becomes much more partisan but people don't actually care like what their member of Congress is doing or know anything about them, uh, you create space for a lot of mischief. And I, I think, I think that's, that's a very good. That's point, what, what we're going to see.
1: All right, it's 2016.
0: Well,
2: thank you for joining us for so much of our mischief in 2016. Um, this has been, in many ways, a strange year. But doing the weeds, I will say, I'll say to you in the audience, but also to, to you guys, Matt and Sarah, so has been one of the real bright spots for me. I found it to be a lot of fun, and I've learned a lot. And I hope you all have too. Um, we'll be back, of course, next year. We'll even be back next week. The Weeds is a Vox.com and Panoply production. Thank you to producer Afim Shapiro. And and really, truly, thank you to all of you for, for being part of this this year. We will try to do a, a better job next year.
0: Yes.
1: All right. See you next year. See you next
0: year.